Hello and welcome to the SSA Podcast Addictions Edited. Today we've got a, a special edition where I'm going to be talking to Dr Claire Garnett. Uh, Claire is a Senior Research Fellow at UCL and has just won the Fred Yates Prize. So congratulations on winning the Fred Yates Prize. Um, a lot of your research, is, your recent research certainly, is based on the Drink Less app, which we'll talk about in a moment. But um, to get a bit of an idea of, of how you've got here, can you... Uh, perhaps explain what first interested you in uh, in addictions research and in, in this area in general. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. And uh, once again, thank you to the SSA for this award. It's really honoured by it. So I've always been interested in science from quite a young age, I think. Um, and when I went to university, I studied natural science, which was sciences, which was great because it meant that I didn't have to specialise in any one particular area. Um, I had thought, I think even from A-levels, that I was interested in psychology, but didn't want to narrow it down too much at that point. Um, And natural sciences gave me the opportunity to learn, um, we did physiology, um, evolution and behaviour, and then I specialised in psychology in my final year, um, and really, really loved it. And there were elements, we had uh, a course on addiction then, and I found that fascinating, the lectures we were given were just really awe-inspiring. And then... I did a master's and that was when I first moved to UCL and I did a master's in research methods in psychology and for my project um, I looked sort of that was my first focus specifically in the area of smoking cessation um, and again loved that and then had the brilliant opportunity to do a PhD um, within with Susan Mickey, Robert West and Jamie Brown um, and to be honest the the topic was on so broadly, it was going to be developing and evaluating an app to help people reduce their alcohol consumption. And it wasn't a topic that I'd really thought about previously, um, but it was something that really interested me in the sense of I think human behaviour. It's always interesting, like why people do what they do, like in everyday life, as well as sort of when you're looking at it, I suppose, through a sort of science perspective. And when you look at addictive behaviours, there's, there's so many other elements as to why you're doing what you're doing, and there's the addictive fact that it is addictive. Um, then you've got, you know, with alcohol and with tobacco as well, you've got, like, the role that the industry plays versus public health, and that sort of, you know, tug of war almost that goes on with that. So there are just so many elements to it that I just, I suppose, always found really interesting my sort of career path thus far has been if I really enjoyed doing something and found it interesting I've kept going um, and that's yeah where I am where I am now so, so you started working on the app at the beginning of your your PhD um, were, were there any challenges you, obviously obviously but uh, you seem to have come to come to this from a kind of a theoretical behavior change uh, approach and I suppose that matches a lot of um, Robert West Susan Mickey's work um were there any kind of specific challenges in in translating kind of theoretical models that were developed in a kind of pre-internet era to uh, an app that's in a very kind of modern and current setting oh yeah definitely um so all of this was yeah so i suppose sort of you know to say my background sort of health psychology and that was the the focus of my phd and sort of now shift into behavioral science and the, the PhD was myself and, well, now Dr. David Crane, but we both started at the same time and we were both working on the development and the initial evaluation of the app. And he came from, he'd done a master's, I think relatively recently, but he'd spent a lot of time out in, like, you know, the real world. And I'd just come straight from 
undergrad masters and, and straight to that. And he worked in, he'd developed an app before, um, a very successful one, smoke free. And he, when we sat down and had our first supervisory meeting, I think he was like, right, so we'll have the first version of the app out. So this was in September, by January. And everyone went, huh? <laughs> what? Like, no, you can't. Like, that's not gonna. And so I think I was very lucky that we, you sort of, both sides had to, you had had to sort of meet in the middle and, you know, and technology it comes a lot faster and you would just release anything and, and sort of iterate from the point at which you had the product. But we took a, you know, it was a very systematic and like rigorous approach, but there definitely were aspects where you thought, well, you know, this, we think this will work, but actually then does it work in an app? And one of the, the modules was on identity change. And there's, you know, evidence from smoking and from, from other health behaviours that identity change can help people not only change their behaviour, but also then maintain it once you've changed it, because there's sort of two different uh, concepts, I suppose. And I thought, oh, so interesting, because, you know, drinking and how people feel about when they've drunk can quite often be linked to their identity. And, you know, I remember thinking that at university, quite often I drank, because I was like, I think I'm more fun. Well, like, you know, I think I'm more fun when I'm at, you know. Yeah. And, and so that was part of that identity for me. Mm. So I thought, oh, you know, if we look at that... And it, you know, we did our best. We did a lot of user testing and we went through all of that. And it just, it, it didn't quite come. And, you know, that sort of was borne out in the evidence of the fact that, you know, you can look at the usage data and very few people went to that because it was quite clunky and quite involved. And, you know, the, we didn't detect, um, you know, any interactive effects of, of that module when we did the factorial trial. And I wonder whether that is something that would require a more in-depth face-to-face conversation where you can engage with somebody and think about it that that doesn't work in an app or requires somebody to have already really invested in in that process Um, and I think partly as well with apps is almost what people expect to use I think people are quite used to using apps to track things yeah that's okay get information back from it set some goals see some feedback you know you can get that with banking apps for example those things happen Mm. But it's not that common that you get apps that ask you to really evaluate your relationship with that and your identity. And so whether there's an element to what people expect to find in an app as well that plays a role. Yeah, there's, there's some really interesting uh, conversations that I've had with, with people over the, the past few years about, um, about the importance or the relevance, I suppose, of a therapeutic relationship. Um, and like the opinions always range from like, no such thing as exists or... Uh, to actually if we can do things all automated we can get rid of the therapeutic relationship and it's a muddy thing that we can't really study anyway Um, and I I think it's really interesting the way that people can develop therapeutic relationships with technology certainly you know Mm. people people are very fond of their phones I've noticed these days I mean I'm not a technophobe but I think it's really interesting how to develop that in a kind of uh, kind of planned and structured way that you would with a key worker, um, and that that's still quite a challenge. Yeah, and I think that's such a good point. And the you know, there's this chatbots have been introduced, and they've shown mm. that that's been really engaging because you do get that sort of that back and forth. Um, and I suppose also just to say at this point that I, you know, I don't think digital interventions are a silver bullet. I don't think that they should replace face to face or therapeutic mm. interventions. Um, I think they work for some people. And if we can reduce the burden on the NHS and on other services by helping people who don't require 
therapeutic intervention, then we can, you know, they, they've each got their own role to play and they each have their own pros and cons. And I think it's about helping people in whatever way we can and digital interventions are a good way of, of reaching a lot of people. And as you say, most people and both of us are sat here with our phones yeah, yeah. Within, within arm's reach, just in case. Yeah. So, you know, it's... It is, you know, it's always available. It's always accessible. There's, there's no opening hours to it. So, mm. I think that side of things is, is one of the real strengths of them. Is it? Um, so, so on that note, so uh, I can't remember which which paper it's in, but you, you, you briefly described the process of developing the app from almost like having a paper based like. Uh, like wireframes. Wireframes. Yeah. yeah, that's the word I was scrabbling for. Um, like having this kind of really visual way of how this would work and developing that into an app that, that is now kind of you know, slick, usable, available um, and, and well used. I mean, there must have been something quite satisfying about that. Does it become frustrating that there are dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of alcohol-based apps that aren't based on a kind of review of the evidence, that aren't based on kind of sound theoretical basis? And is there something that, you know... It, I guess from a slightly pessimistic note, is this something that research is almost doomed to fail at because you can put out something that isn't evidence-based but that's very compelling like that, whereas to develop something that's, that's based on something sound it takes, takes years and, and reviews and, and time and money. Is, is, is that kind of challenge or...? It's definitely a challenge. I don't think I've ever thought of it as frustrating, potentially until now. So but, but, <laughs> but I don't think... It's, you know, that's part of how the project came about was the fact that there are all of these alcohol reduction apps out there and the majority are not based on any evidence or cite any theory behind them. Mm. And so I suppose it's not, you know, yes, that's presumably a lot much quicker process. I don't know. I wasn't involved in those, but I assume it was a, a quicker process than what we did. But, you know, potentially the, the goal's different and our goal is to help people mm-hmm reduce their harm from alcohol by drinking less alcohol and so the best way of doing that from what you know from my expertise from the whole team here at UCL and more broadly was to use the science and like our knowledge of behavioral science and health psychology to work out how can we help people reduce their alcohol consumption and so I suppose it didn't feel like oh it's unfair they're like they're running faster than us (laughs) because we had a different end goal to it Um, and I think you know, we're, we're currently running a big randomised controlled trial of the app and and the one of the main reasons for that is basically informing is it worth investing resources into large-scale implementation and promotion. So there's over 65,000 unique users of the app, which is a lot, but in, you know, if you think about all of the apps and the number of users that you can get on apps, it's not a huge, huge number. Um and it exists and it's out there and we've sort of developed it. But I think, so I suppose it's the sort of lost opportunity cost. We don't want to encourage people to be using an app that actually isn't any better than usual digital care. Yeah. But if it is, then it's worth investing those resources. And I think then, you know, it is worth having the evidence because, you know, we've had conversations with, um, you know, people within the NHS and, you know, Public Health England and, and GPs, and rightly so, they don't want to recommend an app that they don't have good evidence for. And, you know, we will 
have good evidence for whether or not it is effective at helping people reduce their alcohol consumption. So, yes, it will have taken a while to get there, but I think it's... I wouldn't have wanted to do it another way, I suppose is what I'm saying. Yeah, that makes that makes absolute sense. The the paper that you did on on user testing um, uh, and essentially that kind of optimization. So you didn't you didn't kind of say right, we've got an app, we want to test whether it works. You said we've got an app, we want to make sure it works as well as it can, and then we want to test whether it works. So you, you're kind of you're testing the ideal version rather than. Uh, you know, suboptimal version, which means you can then tell if the intervention works rather than just that version of the intervention, which I think is amazing and should happen more. Uh, can you talk us through how you did that? I mean, did you like throw everyone in a room, give them phones and ask them to use the app? How did you kind of get the data that you need? Yeah, so the, we had users involved in that process in sort of, I suppose, two main ways, one of which was the user testing. That was the researcher and one user. Um, we use purposive sampling with um, recruitment for the usability testing uh, to make sure we had people across a range of social demographic characteristics. We had these, yeah, effectively one to one, and they were called they were think aloud studies. So we gave the participant the phone. Um, we asked them some questions, and we asked them to do particular tasks. And the point of the think aloud is for them to think aloud, unsurprisingly, um, whilst they're doing it. So we say, you know, can you try and set a goal for drinking less than 20 units a week? And they'll say, okay, so I'm clicking on this. Ah, that's, I wasn't expecting to see that. And and you get a sort of real-time experience of a naive user yeah. approaching the app. So, you know, the, the first time that we did that, David Crane led that work, um, and we thought we created the best app. Like, I was so <laughs> proud of it. And he did those first ones, and he was like, no one's got any idea what to do. When the when they arrives on the, like, landing page, it's just like this, they don't know what to click on, they don't know what to do. And you're like, oh, but, you, you know, you'd had a goal here. And, you'd, and it was so obvious to us because you'd been yeah, yeah. so heavily involved with it. And it really highlighted the importance of it. It was like, you know, no, there needs to be a kind of, show show and tell of like first do this and like a bit more of a walkthrough so that people came familiar with it and then could start using it natively and obviously you can skip those as many people do just skip tutorials but the fact that it's there and they could access it allowed people to to come through that way um and then the other way we involved users was it wasn't something that i'd thought about previously as being an incredibly useful resource but it's the reviews the feedback that we get from users Mm -hmm. so users can leave a review on the app store or they can email the support at drinklessalcohol.com email address and through that you find out from users of the app rather than naive users um um what annoys them it's like i can't i don't know how to edit the goal okay you're like oh it's that button on the top right and when you realize that you've answered that email quite a few times you start to think ah it's not the user it's the app Mm. and so we collated all of that information and looked at which were coming up more frequently so sometimes it was to do with bugs but other times it was feature requests so they said oh actually i'd love to be able to um retake the audit after a month so i can then see how my comparison against the norm has changed because you know that was what it was but i've now changed my drinking and i want to know how i now compare or you had people saying, you know, yeah, I, I don't know how to, to edit this or I don't have to delete a drink once I've entered it. Mm. And so I did a content analysis of that, saw which were the most frequent um, and prioritised those for, for then changing it. So that whole sort of refinement process had a lot of different 
sources of evidence that informed what changed. Um, and yeah, I would say with the user reviews, they're incredibly useful. They do tend to be sort of one end of the spectrum. Irritations? Irritations or adoration. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so but if you think about it, it's like when, have you, when was the last time you left a review? It's normally you love it or you hate yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And so you get sort of extreme, and that's not to say that it's not useful, but you just have to remember that it's not necessarily a representative sample of your users responding. Yeah. And you'll get some sort of super users who are like, I want to be able to write down the volume of my drink to the milliliter. Yeah. And it's like, well, for, for a lot of people, that would be incredibly annoying because they, they don't know how many milliliters necessarily yeah. are in a small bottle. So, you know, we then edited it. So there's on the drop down list, you've got all those default options and then at the bottom custom. So it's like for those people, you can type in the exact milliliters. Yeah. So I suppose you don't get the feedback from people who've gone through it and go, yeah, no, it's fine. It worked OK, which is really, really useful feedback. Yeah, that was fine. It worked OK is pretty much gold standard, but. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you don't get that from the user feedback. Yeah. I suppose you do get that from the usability testing. And then people say, yeah, no, that all made sense. And you're like, okay, great. So there's, and I suppose it highlights the importance of not using one single source of evidence because they've all got their you know, advantages and disadvantages. But if you try and answer the same question with lots of different approaches, whereas, you know, triangulation, then yeah. if you get the same response, same answers from each different approach, then you can be more confident that that's the, the right answer. Nice. Um, the only uh, the other thing I did want to ask you about you had a paper talking about being endorsed by a a fifty one year old celebrity. Uh, I, I, were you deliberate? Sorry, uh, this is not no, necessarily. No. But like in the in the background, you describe him as like a fifty one year old oh. celebrity. Were you not allowed to name him or something? Oh no, we were. But people basically because I was like everyone knows who Adrian Charles yeah. is, and somebody went, no, they don't all know who Adrian Charles <laughs> is. So we need to explain that like. From a scientific from a scientific perspective. perspective, like who who actually is this person and why might it matter that he spoke about the app? Um, How do you explain Adrian Charles as science? Well, genuinely, have you ever read his Guardian blog? Like, okay. I'll send you one because there was then an article about his articles and it was just the most perfect thing. He's the loveliest man. Oh, like he's, you know, sometimes you're like, you have no idea. It's genuinely really great. But so so uh, you, there, there was a paper on the the effect of being endorsed by, by Adrian Childs, um, uh, which, I, which I find really, really interesting. So one of the things that it did was it increased uh, awareness of and use of the app, which mm. uh, if you're looking at things from a population health level, uh, increased its effectiveness. So it, is there an argument that an active ingredient in app technology is celebrity endorsement? Uh, and if so, should, you know, should there be more studies on that? I, I think it can become really important and I remember you know we sort of we didn't know he was going to talk about the app like we knew he used it but I think it was one day in August and it was the BBC's most read article and he said he mentioned the fact that he used the app and said you know I suggest you everyone just downloads it and tracks their drinking for three weeks to see see how it goes and we sort of saw this and you know we didn't do like oh that's you know it's quite cool and then I had a look at the number of downloads and I remember just scrolling because normally I can see the number of downloads for that date mm. on one screen view on Excel. And I was like, oh, my God, like, <laughs> I'm going to have to use a function to count this. And, yeah, it was wow. crazy. And so I think that day maybe there was sort of 12,000 downloads, which, wow. you know, then 
had the impact of the fact that there was suddenly this huge spike in downloads and so it became one of the sort of top apps on the iTunes health and fitness charts and sort of, you know, it sort of snowballed a bit from there. But it's... I get why people or why companies pay celebrities to advertise their products. I suppose in a way, like, really first-hand that I hadn't previously um, experienced. I think it's, you know, it it does have a role to play in the sense that a whole lot more people have have downloaded and and used the app thanks thanks to him mentioning it. And, you know, it's we didn't have a say in it. It was sort of a natural experiment about what happened. But, you know, what we discovered was it did tend to be that people more like him downloaded the app. So, you know, you'd ideally want somebody using or endorsing your digital intervention who was your target population, which you can't necessarily control. I think there's probably an element to which it's a genuine endorsement. You know, he... It was in the lead up to his documentary on on drinkers like me, so there was a lot of publicity and press around that, and it was obviously something that uh, a topic that he took very seriously and, and cared very deeply about. And so I think, you know, it's it's I'm sure it's not as straightforward as just finding a celebrity and, and paying them to say use this, um, but I do think that there can be a role in that, and it's you know when sort of the thinking when we were writing that paper and having a think about it it was you know the only other example that we could really see was with the jade goody effect that um that you know that the uptake of, of young women getting screened increased um after the publicity around that which again is obviously from a sort of population health point of view hugely uh, important so i think yeah it it does uh, matter and it does have an effect I suppose your question of should there be more studies on it, it's, you know, we didn't plan the study. It happened and then and then we analysed the data. So I suppose there's an element to which it's like, well, if you can plan that, then, and, you know, create a study and design a study around that. Um, but it was, it was really... I found it really interesting what happened. So I, I you know... We had a number of research questions. We didn't hypothesise the direction. Had we done, I would have been wrong on a few of them. I didn't expect that the engagement with the app was going to increase. Mm. I thought if somebody's taken the time to search through the app store to find an app called Drink Less, they're probably quite heavily invested already in wanting to reduce their alcohol consumption and are likely to use the app. If somebody's heard somebody on the TV or read an article saying, why don't you download this app, give it a go... I was like, oh, my thinking was they'll download it, they'll use it, and we more likely to stop engaging with it quicker. Um, but that wasn't the case. And, you know, whether that's to the extent that, you know, his suggestion was track your drinking for three weeks. And so people said, OK, I'll, I'll track my drinking for three weeks. Um, and also that people's audit score, so the alcohol use disorders identification test, so that's sort of a measure of alcohol consumption and harms and, and dependence, that decreased, but the proportion of people who were increasing in high-risk drinkers didn't change. So it seemed that actually what had happened was that it was still people who would benefit from reducing their alcohol consumption, but it sort of shifted down to a, a lower, the lower end of that, which was really interesting given his documentary was around, I never thought of myself yeah. as a problem drinker, but actually, 
you know, it is all on this spectrum that I do fall somewhere on this and there's not this sort of false dichotomy between like problem drinkers and, and non-problem drinkers. Um, and so whether that also then meant that people who were previously maybe hadn't thought, oh, I need to have a think about my drinking or maybe it would be helpful to track it, then thought, oh, if he's saying that, maybe I should give it a go. Um, um, as, and, and on your papers, you've been, you know, you've been incredibly prolific writer. I mean, like, just such a long list of citations. It's amazing. Um, again, but kind of thinking of early career researchers, um, how, <laughs> how do you do it? <laughs> I mean, thank you. I, um, it's, I suppose, first up, you know, within our group, we have the smoking and alcohol toolkit studies mm-hmm. where data is collected by Ipsos Mori. So a large part of the, quite often the sort of scientific paper writing process isn't conducted by us directly. Okay. So there's like data cleaning and things that people within the, the, the group do. But so I'm, I don't have to go and collect the data. Okay. And I think that is something to remember when you're comparing one, I'd say maybe don't compare your publication list to somebody else's because I don't know necessarily how helpful it will be. Um, but I suppose if you are having a look at that, it's thinking about, well, what was required to be able to write that study? And, you know, sometimes with toolkit data, you can go, oh, I wonder if we could answer this question. You look and the, the variables are collected and you go, huh, I can. So that is a much quicker process than going I'd love to answer this question right now let's design a study go out and collect the data and then write it up so I think it matters how you're going about collecting the data I suppose is what I'm trying to say in short Um, another thing that I found hugely helpful is that within our research group we have weekly meetings where people bring papers or protocols that they're working on so you are effectively getting sort of like internal peer review and as we were saying with the sort of pre-registration the those checks happening at the protocol stage so you've got feedback on like whether or not this is an appropriate analysis if the research question is um you know set up well from the rationale and all of anything that you could want i suppose in terms of feedback on on that on the plan for your paper so that when you actually then get to the analysis section you've sort of already everyone's already agreed that um and i think that makes it more efficient because you're only doing the analysis once like i've sort of got work friends who say you know oh brought this paper to the group and and now now we've decided we're going to do the analysis completely differently so i've got to go back to the start and i'm, I'm starting again it's like or you know that is not an efficient way so i suppose that's sort of another element for pre-registration is it, it is more efficient to to agree a plan that you're all going to stick to um, and and carry on. And I suppose that's something else to say that, you know, I attended these weekly research group meetings from the start of my PhD, mm. and initially I think the comments that I gave would be like, well, I think you've missed a comma there or something. Yeah. She didn't really feel qualified to be giving suggestions. But one of the best pieces of advice I got was like, pay attention to the feedback that people are, uh, other people are giving. Mm. So whether that's at weekly research group meetings or, you know, if you're peer reviewing for a journal and you know you get that automated email saying the reviews have gone, have a look at what other people said about yeah, the yeah. same paper that you reviewed. Yeah, yeah, like, have a think, because it's like different perspectives and you can learn so much mm. by hearing what other people see. 
And, you know, one of the things that Susan, I remember always saying during my PhD was like, be consistent with your terminology. Stop using different terms when you mean the same thing. It's confusing for readers. And you're like, it is. And now I, I see it myself, but it's like, well, changed terms there, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. You know, and so it's sort of, but if you're listening to the feedback that other people are giving you to other people's papers, yeah. a lot of that is likely to apply to yours. And so I think getting to be sort of witness to other people's paper writing process yeah. can also help your own. So I think that element of it is also hugely beneficial. Um, and the last, uh, the last question, um, you are now a, a leader in the area of alcohol apps um, and, you know, you lead a team as well. Um, and and how, how has that been for you to kind of go from, say, five, five years ago finishing your PhD to now, being that kind of uh, that area leader and and like leading a team of researchers in a direction. I, I mean, how's that been? Um, it's definitely been a, a learning curve. It's something that I rec- I didn't feel ready for, and my manager, who I think incredibly high love, Jamie. He, I said, you know, when we were writing the application. I was like, well, you'll, you'll be the line manager for the, the new researchers. And he's like, no, no, you, you will. <laughs> I couldn't, like, what? No, I couldn't possibly. And so I think it's, you know, and I've got, you know, a colleague in, in Toronto who's recently taken over a research group and she similarly said she never felt ready. So I think don't necessarily expect to feel ready. <laughs> and, you know, I've been very fortunate with having a lot of support sort of within within the group and and from other sort of more senior colleagues with that um it's strange like you know normally i suppose there's a number of elements that one of the ones is that it used to be that everything to do with this project i did Mm -hmm. and suddenly you're sort of handing that over to other people and you know i'm aware of how lucky I am that genuinely like I'm sure everyone would say this but like really genuinely the people in the team are so brilliant that it doesn't require a sort of or oh, sort of like sense of trust because I, I just know that they're on top of it and so that's hugely helpful um and I think yeah it's not I suppose leadership sort of kind of creeps up on you and you don't necessarily think of yourself like that and then you realise that you're well that is what you're doing um, and I always find it strange when people ask like what do you, you like as a leader it's like you should probably ask the people that I'm leading how they find me it's probably a more uh, well not accurate but well, if you were if you were if you were designing a study to identify how good someone was at a leader, yeah. you you, you wouldn't target them. that as the uh, population, <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so it was unfair of me. No, no. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's it's something that happens gradually, and I, I sort of do have moments of thinking back to five years ago, and it's it, I would never have thought this is where I w- would be, but actually, you know the opportunities that come up, the the luck that you get, the and you sort of just end up there. So I, whether it's funding opportunities that somebody suggests or, you know, leadership roles or whether it's somebody offers whether or not you want to chair meetings. So for a couple of years, I chaired the research group meetings for our research group. And so you sort of get used to saying, you know, oh, <laughs> sorry, bit of a tangent there. We're going to have to, you know, so you sort of, 
get practice at those skills where you can UCL's got leadership courses that I've I've been on one of those that was really helpful because they sort of you know at the time it was awful because they put you in and go go on and they sort of create these scenarios but actually that's the only way you're going to learn I think is is by um by practicing and I think I've been very lucky that for me anyway I think the people that I've been led by are people that I look up to and would like to replicate so I've also got sort of you know role models in that sense so that side of things has whilst it felt like a lot has not been as much as I thought it was going to be it's it was as is often the way far more worried about it than than I needed to be yeah. and when it comes around and it's it's going smoothly you think ah okay <laughs> that was okay. it's fine yeah, <laughs> yeah. um Dr. Claire Garnett, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much for having me. 